ready. Shalom and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's uh, edition of our Garden of Peace series that it is that we're doing. We're in chapter 12 of the book this week, and if you've missed any of the episodes of this, you can go and find us by searching Lapid Judaism, either on Vimeo, where you can download the videos, or you can go on to YouTube, and you can get them there. Or uh, one of the things that we highly encourage is for you to subscribe to either the audio or the video version of these teachings on iTunes. Go and open up your podcast app and just search Brutal Planet and you'll be able to subscribe right there. And you can also get all 2,000 plus of my teachings in video and MP3 form also on over at LapidJudaism.com. Now, Chapter 12 is probably one of the longest chapters in this book, and it's, it's, it's about 50 pages long. Now, the thing is that uh, usually we do these teachings live. We decided to do this one pre-recorded because we didn't want to get off track considering that there's so much stuff to cover within this chapter here. So we um, pre-recorded this and are uh, putting it up. <coughs> oh, excuse me on all of the platforms here uh, on demand as opposed to doing it live. Um, so, you know, so that's the reason why it is that we're not doing this teaching live here today because I didn't want to get sidetracked and there's so much to cover. Now, one of the things that I can say about Chapter 12, which is entitled The Garden of Eden, within Rabbi Shalom Arusha's book, The Garden of Peace, A Marital Guide for Men, is that in many ways it's kind of a Cliff Notes version of all of the chapters that we've already discussed, chapters 1 through 11. And so many of these things are going to be reiterated. So if you're a new listener to this series, one of the things about it is you'll be getting the Cliff Notes versions, but I very much uh, you know, would ask that you go through each of the parts of this series, starting with the very first episode, which is the most important mitzvah, and start over there because we're not going to be reiterating too much of some of the things that it is that you should already know if you're up to this 12th episode, Okay. We, uh, uh, you know, we think that, you know, if you've gotten this far, then you should have a little bit of a grasp of some of the things of which it is that we're talking about that we shouldn't need to have to reiterate and redefine uh, and rediscuss over again. But we're going to look at it in a much more condensed form. And this entire chapter is about how to go and create your home and your marriage into essentially the Garden of Eden before it is the, uh, we have the fall of man. And so... We are going to start out here um, on page 257, which starts out chapter 12, under the heading, Difficult Time. This is what Rabbi Shalom Arush says here. There are times when, when severe judgment weakens a person's spiritual strength to cope with day-to-day -day life. Examples of this are illness, debts, problems at work, or arguments and friction with other people. These are times when a spouse must have extra patience to be even more helpful and supportive. Trying times test the couple's dedication to one another and their emunah. One, uh, the one experiencing the difficulty, uh, the difficulties is tested to see if he or she believes that everything is for the good and if they will strengthen themselves with joy, emunah, prayer, and repentance. Their partner is tested to see if they will act with kindness, mercy, and extra patience. The times when a woman is ritually impure or pregnant are periods of special difficulty. Another very stressful period for a woman is the time in between marriage and, and the bearing of her first child. The longer it takes, the more distressed she becomes. When by our matriarch, uh, Rachel, who said to Jacob, Give me children, and if not, I am dead. As we see in the book of Bereshit, or Genesis, chapter 30, verse 1. Nachmanides explains that she hoped that Jacob, out of his love for her, would fast and wear sackcloth and ashes and pray at great lengths that she merit having children, so that she shouldn't die in her sorrow. Now, before we continue on here, one of the things that we ultimately end up saying is that we see that many of the things that it is that we have to deal with on a daily day-to-day -day basis, by the way that it is that we handle it, can either... Maintain shalom ba'is, cause shalom ba'is to grow, thus causing a person to go and increase in emunah, and to increase in the fulfillment of mitzvahs, and to increase in the uh, the fruit that is brought about from that of a person's marriage, 
or it can cause all of those things to crumble in the way that it is that we respond to some of the things that affect each and every single one of us on the outside world. But we see that in many ways that we have to handle it much differently as a married person than a single person would. Because a married person, these things affect the entire household. They affect the wife. They affect the children. They affect everything that is a part of a cohesive unit. And in many ways, if it is that we respond negatively, it almost becomes like a cancer. And what does cancer do? It attaches itself to a cell, and then it spreads. Then it spreads and ultimately goes and ends up killing the organism which it is attached to, which is the human body. And so we have to think about our response to certain things, you know, that are a part of the outside world that become a part of our home, become a part of the bayit. And how it is that it affects the other individuals within that of the home. We have to take this into great consideration. In such a situation, a husband must give extra attention to his wife, join her in her suffering, encourage her, strengthen her, and pray long and hard for her. Elkanah, the father of the prophet Shmuel, was a perfect example of this. While his wife had had barren, he comforted her saying, Aren't I better to you than ten sons? As we see in the book of Shemuel or Samuel, chapter one, or first Samuel, chapter one, verse eight. And Rashi explains in terms of this passage, I give you more love than, uh, than I give the ten sons that Penina also bore me. And Metsodat David explains, I love you the same that you've given me ten sons. But when Jacob answered Rachel, am I in God's place, having withheld children from you, as we see in the book of Bereshit, Genesis chapter 30, verse 2, and didn't pray for her? Hashem rebuked him, saying, this is the way to answer a woman in distress, but your life, your children, the other tribes, will in the future all stand before her son Yosef as we find in the Medrash Rabbah. We could go and look at some of the things and the way it is that we would respond to other men that are going through the same thing and we could think that we would respond the same way to a wife. But I say to you, shalom. God forbid, that is not the way that it is that we should respond. For one of the things that we have learned throughout this series is that women think much differently than us men do. We're going to be getting into that concept a great deal more as we continue on within this series here today. The following is a good tip for preventing arguments. Whenever you want to ask something of your spouse... First look and see if she is currently busy. Because interrupting her will cause some friction. A wife should not ask her husband for help when he is in a hurry to leave. A husband shouldn't ask his wife to prepare him uh, some, some food while she is busy feeding the children. Only ask for things at an appropriate time. And this uh, entire idea goes into the idea of one thing that we have a huge problem with in today's society. We're very much in a kind of a me society that I am the only one who really matters. It is not the others, you know, that it is that I work with. It's not that they matter. It's not, uh, you know, the individual with whom it is that I am required to give zedachah to. It's not him that matters. And Hashvi Shalom, we are in a bad place if we come into the Bais, into the home, and we go and we have, you know, go and ask a wife. We go and we say to her, hey, I know you're busy with all this stuff, but hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at my wants. Look at my needs. I'm number one here. Don't be Jackie Gleason, ladies and gentlemen. King of the castle, lord of the manor. This is not the way that us men should act. Never. Under any sort of circumstance. Don't start a conversation with your spouse when he or she is in a rush to get, to get out. You, uh, you may want to talk for a while, but your partner feeling pressured to leave is likely to get angry for being delayed. Leave it for another time when he or she has more time. 
we get more deeply into this here a little bit later on. Now, many of the individuals who come to me and they want to know about, uh, they want to know about some counseling for that of their upcoming nuptials. One of the things that I always end up doing is I go and I order them a copy of this book for the husband, for the soon-to-be husband. I also order a copy of this for the soon-to-be wife as well. And I say, you know, this is the best uh, training that you could ever have. And I'll go over these things with them in the office and all of these other things or over the phone or what have you and help them along the way in their counseling. Because the very first year of marriage is the most important time to where it is that you end up going and really setting the groundwork and the foundation for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of your life. And Rabbi Shalom Arush goes into this premise as well. He says this, The Torah commands us, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go to war. Neither shall he be charged with anything that he should be free for his house for one year and shall cheer his wife that he has taken. We find this in the book of Davarim, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 5. These chapters within Deuteronomy or Davarim deal a great deal with the mitzvot of marriage, starting at chapter 21, by the way. The first year of marriage is a foundation upon the couple's entire married life. It is built because everything goes according to the beginning. Therefore, the Torah commands that a newly married man be free for his house for the entire year to cheer his new wife. This is the time for which a couple to forge a spiritual and loving bond with one another. The better the husband is to a new wife and the happier he makes her, the stronger the bond between them will be. If the husband is successful, he can create a bond of love, unity, friendship, and cling to his wife that will last a lifetime. You know, you think of many ways about how it is that a parent goes and trains their children in many ways. How it is that they have to become accustomed to cleaning the room. How it is that they have to be accustomed to doing their chores. And why is it that, you know, at the very beginning of these things, when they first teach you, hey, uh, go and take out the trash or go and unload the dishwasher or go and set the table or go and clean your room or any of these things, you see within the very first year, it's very, it, there's, there's a lot of tug of war that's going on there between the parent and the child. But this is ultimately to kind of go and set them up for when it is that they are on their own, for when it is that they go off to college and they have their own dorm room so that they're able to go and do these things that it is that is required of them to uh, you know be able to live a normal life. And so in many ways, there is a programming of the mind that takes place very much within the first year of marriage that will kind of cause this to become a part of a person's training for that it will uh, make them become everything that they are supposed to be for the next 70-some years. Rabbi Shalom Arush goes on here. He says, Even a learned man with good character traits must learn what makes women happy and what upsets them. If he is to succeed in the first year of marriage, marriage, Rabbi Ben-Zion, Abba Shaul, of Blessed Memory, writes, There are young men who, right after the wedding, realize that their wives are not behaving as they would like them to, and think it correct to bombard them with new wives and all ethical, uh, all ethical teachings that they heard and learned from their yeshiva. This is not the way. One of the things that we ultimately end up seeing that causes a great deal of friction within that of the messianic in the Hebrew roots world is that when people end up getting married, one of the things that we ultimately end up seeing is that there is a zealousness for Hashem. A zealousness for Hashem is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. It is, you know, something that is the glue to the marriage by having Hashem at the head and in between the man and the wife as they dance together through this thing called life. Together, as one unit, we see Hashem has to guide them. But in many ways, one of the things that we ultimately end up lacking in many ways is this, is this sense of understanding, being able to see things. Shev'im panim ha Realizing that the Torah has 70 faces. One of the things that ultimately is the detriment 
to marital to 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 uh to, to marital covenant within that the Hebrew roots world and the messianic world is that many come from a very linear thought perspective. They have the Sammy Hagar complex. There's only one way to rock, or there's only one way that this should be interpreted and it should be done, and thus it is the Frank Sinatra complex. It is my way. That's the way that it's often end up taken. And so what happens is that when you have two individuals in this in this manner saying, this is the way that we're going to do this, two people that have never gone and lived together before, have not operated in this fashion before, there's a lot of strife that ultimately ends up happening from this very linear ideal. And this ultimately goes and causes issue. Saying, I'm going to prove to my wife is right. I'm going to source to her. I'm going to short, short, short to her the Mishnah. I'm going to short, source to her the Tosefta. I'm going to show her what Rashi says. I'm going to show her what the Rambam says. I'm going to show her what the, uh, what the Or HaChaim says, what the Maharal, and so on down the line. There is no way that, you know, it is that she could deny the things that it is that I'm saying. We find this on social media rather often. Everybody wants to be right. You know, it's very interesting because the goal of the Torah have, there's actually two goals of the Torah, according to Chazel. One is for the realization of Mashiach, first of all. The second one is for Shalom. For a person who is able to maintain Shalom, according to the two most important mitzvahs, to love Hashem your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, is important. It's all built upon the foundation of the premise of shalom and simcha. Simcha, uh, joy cannot come from not having shalom. Shalom builds upon all these other things. Without shalom, you cannot have, as well at the same time, you cannot have ahava. You cannot have love without it. So one of the goals is to always, under any circumstance, to maintain shalom, whether it be shalom bayis, peace in the home, marital bliss, or whether it is that you are at your job, whether it is that you are amongst other believers in the congregation. doesn't matter where it is that you are. Your number one goal at all times should be shalom. And this should be something that it is that we've ultimately ended up understanding by the concept that we have gone over in this series about how it is that the man is a mirror reflection of his wife. How it is that he is seen by the outside world affects the way that it is that she is seen. And it's something to, uh, to be very diligent. If you truly love your wife, then first of all, you're going to want to see her in the best light, her to be seen in the best light possible. And so therefore, Shalom has to be kept not only with the outside world, but ultimately with her as well, because it affects her honor. It affects her vitality. It affects all of these things. In the first year, a couple should not host many guests because they should certainly not entertain other young couples because this always leads to comparison between the husbands and the wives. Something can be that can seriously dis disturb their fragile relationship. Yeah, this fragile relationship. You know, first year of wife, that's like, you know, the best year, you know, people will say. It's the best year. What, what do you mean? Because of the fact that, first of all, there is not much chokmah, wisdom, that is only shared between the two of you, that is, that is specified between the two of you, in the way that you relate to one another. In that first year, that is something that comes over time. That's something that has to be built upon. You know, the, the, it, 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 it takes some time. So what happens is there is this constant com comparison. Well, are, are we, you know, better fit than they are? Are they better fit than us? I'm kind of jealous of, you know, the way that it is that she looks at him. You know, I'm kind of jealous of the way that uh, he looks at her. I'm kind of jealous in the way that it is that they seem to be so in sync and all this stuff. And what happens is, this then gets into the complexities of how it is that the man and wife go and see their relationship when they're having to be compared to another couple. And so therefore, that's something that they have to build up themselves. They have to be, have that confidence within one another. 
you know, the first year of marriage, oftentimes, you know, people say is, you know, marital bliss at its highest, but still it's also very fragile at the same time. Because, again, that chokmah is not quite there yet. The, the foundation is not fully built. You know, it's, it's almost like you got that wet concrete, and you know that it's going to harden, it's going to stiffen, it's going to become a very good foundation. But it's going to take some time for that, uh, for that, uh, uh, for that uh, uh, foundation to become hard, to become solid, to be something that can support the weight that is put upon it. Very important. Women don't function well with time frames limitation. Okay, now, <coughs> this is something that us men have a hard time with. A study showed that it's common for women to be up to 45 minutes late for appointments. Oh my gosh, 45 minutes. A husband who's not aware of this will be drawn to many unnecessary arguments. When his wife is late, he will get angry and grumble. How, do, how long does it take you to get ready? You're always late. But when a husband understands that this is simply her nature, he makes sure to always fix the earlier time for his wife. A man can freshen up in just a, uh, in next to no time. A woman needs, a, needs much longer. A husband mustn't complain about how long it takes his wife to get ready. The female characteristic of working slowly and thoroughly is mentioned as early as our teacher in the Marais, in medieval Talmudic commentator, he wrote, Women work very slowly. And even the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 32, verse 9, referred to women as being leisurely. Why is this? Why is it that, you know, women tend to be late? Why is it that they, you know, are considered to be leisurely, as it says uh, in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 9? Any takers on that? Think, think, think on this. The reason is because, first of all, a, a, a woman has a different set of values than a man does. Well, not really values, but a different set of focus. Her focus is on, first of all, making sure that she looks pretty. Making sure that, you know, that she is seen in a particular way. Us guys, we can go and jump in the shower, you know. Okay, yeah, this shirt's clean. Go and put that on, you know. Fix the hair a little bit, you know, and all that stuff. And then, you know, get dressed, you know, maybe put put some uh, body spray on and some deodorant and all that good stuff. We're good to go, you know. But women, on the other hand, it's much more of the overall package that they are, you know, what is it that I want to present today? What is it that, you know, how is it that I want to be seen? And so, therefore, this is where her honor and her vitality come from. Now, the thing about it, though, is that if a woman goes and shows up to an appointment and she doesn't go through this process she comes in you know with pajama pants and a t-shirt and something you, you see that there's something really wrong with her honor and her vitality and it could very much come from her from her husband saying you need to hurry up and get ready you need to hurry up and get ready and so what happens is she doesn't see herself as being pretty she doesn't see herself as having the value that she could as she is going to these appointments and being around other people and all and all these things, she is very much in a very fragile state at this time. And the thing about it, though, is that that is ultimately going to cause friction within that of the marriage. It's going to cause issue. <coughs> it's not going to increase the shalom bayis. Shalom bayis is going to remove itself from 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 the home. Ultimately, what will end up happening is that this will affect other attributes of the marriage. She will then go and uh, maybe not pay as much attention to the children. She might just go and give them an iPad and say, oh, well, you know, here's the uh, the Baby Shark song. Just go and put play this on, on, on repeat, and I'm going to go into uh, the living room and watch soap operas. You know, and it's because of her honor and her vitality that she goes and does that. She, she feels worthless. So the thing about it, though, is that if she is running late because she is wanting to uh, go and get herself ready and all of these other things, then we should say, Baruch Hashem. Because that goes to show that, first of all, she knows that you're not going to get angry with her for being late. And second of all, you know, that she feels that, you know, that she has value, that she has, you know, um, uh, that, that, that she has uh, the desirable attributes of her that, you know, that she wishes to display to you and to others around as well. 
to basically say, you know, first of all, I respect myself. I, you know, care about the way that it is that I'm presented. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. The Torah commands, and he shall cheer his wife that he has taken. We find this in the book of Davarim, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. But the Torah does not command the wife to cheer her new husband. It also does not state that the husband should rejoice with his wife. Rashi comments, One who explains that he should rejoice with his wife is mistaken. Seems kind of kind of an interesting statement here. What is Rashi getting at here? The mitzvah is for the husband to cheer his wife, not to rejoice together with her, meaning to be her encouragement in everything, in everything that it is that she does. He is to be her encourager, even if he disagrees. Okay? He doesn't necessarily have to agree with what it is that she is doing, but realizing that the things that bring her simcha are going to be the things that ultimately is an investment within her from him. So by him going and encouraging her and whatever it is that she does is ultimately going to serve the purpose of Shalom Ba'is. And also he will see great payback within that of his marriage in terms of his investment. Okay, The mitzvah teaches us that a wife's happiness comes from her husband. He must see that a woman can have everything, success, wealth, beauty, popularity, power, prestige, and influence. But if her husband doesn't value and cherish her, she is miserable. This is because her joy depends entirely upon the degree that he cherishes her. On the other hand, he can find, uh, we can find uh, simple women who aren't very successful, bright and beautiful, but their husbands value and cherish them. They feel like they are floating on air. That's something to take to heart, men. That is definitely something to take to heart. And speaking of the lave of the heart, there's actually a section on this right here within Rabbi Shalom Arush's book on page 266. Rabbi Arush says this, Hashem wants the heart. And we see this, by the way, just to kind of deviate away from this for, for, for a second. The first letter within the Torah is the bait. Within the word Bereshit, the very first verse of the Torah. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim viet ha'eretz. The very first letter. In fact, it says that Hashem created the world, according to that of the Zohar, through the letter Beit. The very last letter of the Torah is found within the word Israel, which is the last word. And it's the Lamed. One of the things that we ultimately end up learning through this is when we combine the Lamed with that of the letter Beit, we get the word Lev, which is the word heart in Hebrew. Thus, going and showing us that the entire fulfillment of mitzvahs of the Torah does not come from the hands, does not come from Going and doing this, putting on the zitziot, wearing the kippah, putting on the tefillin, going and putting the mezuzah on the door, eating kosher, going and doing the uh, uh, the 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 moedim, not uh, you know going and doing all of these things, but rather it comes from the attributes that uh, wanting to do these things for the sake of Hashem, lishma Hashem, through that of the lev, through that of the heart. This is why Paul goes into great detail, going into differentiating the letter of the law, of the Torah, and that of the spirit of the Torah, and how it is that at times the goof or the basar, the body, the flesh of a person, can be against that of the nature of the lave, of the heart. And so he warns us a great deal about this. So this is something to, 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 to think about. All of mitzvahs have to be done and fulfilled. Lishma Hashem, for the sake of Hashem, have to be done through shalom, simcha, and ahava. Cannot be done for the reason of, well, you know, it just says to do it, so I'm going to do it. You know, it's not about that. You know, it's about doing it 
you know, not for one's own sake or for the sake of the Torah itself, but rather Lishma Hashem through Simcha, through Ahava, and through and through that of uh, Shalom. And so, therefore, when things are, are fulfilled to that of doing your marital obligation, which indeed is Torah law, when it is that you go and sign the Ketubah, first of all, it has to be done for the sake of the other person. It has to be done wholeheartedly through that of the leave. That is so important. Rabbi Shalom Arush says this, Hashem wants the leave. He wants the heart. The value of every act of serving Hashem depends entirely on how much one's heart went into it. It also says, Give my son your heart to me, as it says in the book of Mishlei, or Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 26. Likewise, when it comes to the mitzvot between man and his fellow man, the main thing is the heart. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai said that to his students, Go out and discern a good way for a man to cleave to. Rabbi Eliezer, whoa, just hit the microphone there. A good ayin, a good eye. Rabbi Yehoshua said, a good friend. Rabbi Yossi said, a good neighbor. Rabbi Shimon said, one who considers the outcome of a deed. Lastly, Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, Rabbi Eliezer ben Aruch says, a good heart. Rabbi Yochanan said, said to them, I prefer the words of Rabbi Eliezer ben Aruch. To yours because the words are included in his. That's beautiful, isn't it? Rashi explains, because everything depends upon the heart. We find this in Perkeavot. Chapter 2, verse 9. It's an amazing chapter of Perkeavot. I encourage you guys to read and study more upon it. According to a good heart, or acquiring a good heart, takes work. You don't just necessarily have it. You've got to work towards it. Every measure that a husband gives to his wife should be with his heart. He should strive towards feeling that his wife is a part of himself. I love this story here. I love this story. Rabbi Aryeh Levine, of blessed memory, once a cop accompanied his wife to the doctor. He said to him, My foot hurts. The doctor asked him, Which foot? He answered, Our foot. The doctor asked him to point to which one, and Rabbi Aryeh pointed to his wife's foot. The doctor asked him, Why don't you just say that your wife's foot was hurting? Rabbi Aryeh ex uh, explained, When my wife's foot hurt, my foot also hurts. This is a part of that entire concept that is based upon the citation of the verse, within the book of Bereshit, chapter 2, the book of Genesis, says that man and wife are to come together and become echad. They are to become one. They are to become conjoined. First of all, we learned and talked about several times in this series about how it is that Hava was made from the rib of Adom Horishon. How it is that she is a part of him that is no longer physically attached to that of his body. You know, when my um, late fiance was, you know, getting ready to pass away from cancer, she says something that was just so amazing and so prolific to me. She said, you know, when Hashem had put the breath of life, the Nishmat Chaim, within you, I feel like that he put the rest of the breath within me. That, that was just something that was so profound and so poetic in many ways. But even though many people can look back at that and say, well, that sounds kind of sappy. The thing about it, though, is that to us it very much made sense. There were times where it is that when she would not be feeling well from the things dealing with chemo and all those things, I would end up feeling her sickness. 
there were times when it is that I would not be a very good reflection. This is when I first started reading this book, as a matter of fact. Hadn't made my way all the way through it. Didn't understand about the negative attributes of anger. And she would call me up in the middle of the night and say, whatever it is that you're doing, you need to, you need to stop. Whatever it is that you're angry about, you need to let it go. She would know this. Without me even talking to her or saying anything, she inherently felt it. And this is what it's, what it, what it's meant. You work towards those things. You work towards that relationship. You work towards that, that attribute of echad. But it has to be done in an honest fashion. It cannot just be, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand, you know, or, or, or something like that. No, there, there, there's a real spiritual connection. The rabbis and sages even go and talk about how it is sometimes in terms of sickness and of things that it is that can happen to a person. That a person's besherit, their, you know, soulmate in many ways, who, who it is that they are working to make that of their soulmate is going to ultimately end up suffering some of the same things that it is that they do. And that is, is another reason why it is that the two have to work together, have to encourage one another, because the entire things that come from the heart are going to be attached to the other person. There's this willingness to work together by making one's, oneself's life better. They are making the other person's life better. By, make, by making their spiritual condition stronger, they're making their wife's spiritual condition stronger, or their soon-to-be wife. The potential wife. They're making that stronger, even without saying anything. Because there is this spiritual connection that it is that they've had through that of saying, yes, you are with me, and yes, I am with you. By going and having that contract, whether it's written down in something such as a shadoch, or whether it's by simply saying, hey, did I get the boyfriend or girlfriend job? You know, there is a, in many ways, a contract that is set out there. Our sages said, 10 units of speech came down to the world. Out of these, women took nine. <laughs> I, 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 I love the humor of our sages at times. Our sages were not merely teaching us that women talk more than men. There must be something deeper. And there absolutely is. Jewish law states that a guest <coughs> must not sleep in a room where a husband and wife slept, even at times when they were forbidden to have relations. This seems surprising. If the, cup, if the couple cannot, uh, cannot be intimate in any way, how is the guest disturbing them? Good question. The answer is that he's that he is disturbing them in a big way because with a stranger in the room, the wife won't be able to tell the husband everything that is in her in her heart, and that upsets their relationship. The prophet Micah said, "The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant homes," referring to a guest who sleeps in a in a couple's room, prevents the wife from speaking to her husband. This is the equivalent to casting her out of her pleasant home. Because if she can't talk to her husband, her home isn't pleasant to be in. Women, in many ways, need to talk about everything. It's part of how it is that they're made. I remember when I was a child, for instance, my mom, you know, and my dad would be at work, you know, she would be on the, on the, on the telephone for like, you know, Two hours at a time talking to somebody. You know, it could have been my aunts or it could have been, you know, my grandfather. It could have been her friends. It could have been, you know, a vast majority of individuals. And, you know, during that time in the 80s, you had those long bungee cord-like things, you know, and all that stuff. And I remember her constantly getting tangled up in them. And, you know, here we are as the kids. Oh, gosh, mom's on the phone again, you know, and all these things. You know, we, we, we didn't understand these attributes. You know, we were just kids and all these things. But, you know, women have this need to talk about everything that is going on in, in their life and to share these things. Men, in many ways, we it, this seems foreign to us because in many ways we're a little bit more guarded and a little bit more, 
oh, got a problem, I'll take care of it, you know, kind of thing. But we have to understand and we have to appreciate that women act differently in this matter. And so this is very important. A husband should set aside at least a half an hour a day to listen and to talk to his wife. I disagree with Rabbi Shalom Arush on this. What? You're disagreeing with probably the guy that could be probably the greatest sage of this time, Rabbi Shalom Arush, on this concept? In this book on marriage, which it is that you, uh, Rabbi Christopher, you, you have... You said that you haven't had a single argument with any of the women women you've dated in the past eight years because of this book. Were you disagreeing with him on this concept? Yes. I'm, I'm saying that you need to allot more time to them. More than a half an hour. First of all, hopefully you have listened to the teaching about first place. That nothing comes before that of your wife. That she is first place above Torah studies. She is first place above work. She is first place above everything else. A half an hour a day to sit there and to listen to her. I would say that at least needs to be doubled of part of where you turn off your phone, you turn off the, the, uh, the iPads and, and, and social media and all these things. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, social media and technology today is the thing that is destroying many people's lives and most importantly, their marriages today. Because you can go to a restaurant now and think of all the families that you see sitting together and they're all just kind of sitting there, you know, not even talking to one another. They're texting and they're Facebooking and Instagramming and, you know, uh, uh, you know, Snapchatting and all of these things. This is where, you know, people don't connect anymore. And this is a scary thing. This is a very scary thing because I remember back when I had my, uh, uh, my old coffee shop. You know, I remember where people would come in with cell phones, you know, and all that stuff, you know, when they were, you know, first becoming really popular, where most people had cell phones. And, you know, they would, they'd be coming in and they would come up to the counter and they would say, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, so, so, I'm sorry I was on that call. They would apologize profusely because they knew it was rude. But nowadays, you know, it's, it's interesting at the job that I have now, we got people coming in with cell phones and they're like, you know, just kind of say, you know, like I'm supposed to know exactly what it is they want. And, you know, though it is they have many people behind them, they don't they don't care. They don't give a damn about those people behind them. Instead, they're, you know, saying, you know, uh, you know, the uh, I, it's me, I, me, me, me mentality, you know, and all these things. And, and technology is really, you know, kind of swarmed our life. I say, you know, there needs to be, you know, maybe only an hour set aside within that of a uh, of a marriage every single day. That, you know, where it is that a person goes and messes with their technology, unless it's a part of their job or something like that. You know, whenever it is that you're around your wife and your kids, cell phone off, except to receive important calls. You know, things going on on social media and all that other stuff. There's no reason why it is that we need to be getting to that stuff instantly. There's no reason for it whatsoever. So, let me go, go and continue on. This time should be entirely devoted to her. No eating or drinking. All phones switched off, as I said before. And no children present, just him and her together. This is a daily opportunity to update one another about everything that has happened to them during the day in a relaxed and comfortable atmosphere. This is very important. And it's a huge part of being able to increase your wife's honor and, vi and, and vitality, and knowing that it is that you are invested within her. That is so important. Rabbi Shalom Arush goes on, we're skipping all the way to page 276 here. Still in chapter 12. That's the only chapter we're doing today. It's the longest chapter within the book. A wife should also never see her husband with a frowning or angry face. Unless maybe he's a professional boxer. <laughs> Negative emotion. Change a person's appearance for the worse. As Metsudat, David, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 2 writes, Because of depression, the light of his face turned bitter. When a man enters his home with an angry or depressed face, he updates his wife because of her uh, first thought that he is upset with her. This alone can trigger a quarrel. 
When a friend looks at us with a miserable and angry face, our first reaction is that he or she is upset with us. A wife is especially sensitive about how her husband relates to her. This is very true. You know, I mentioned the boxer as a joke, you know, and all that stuff. You know, one of the things is, you know, why is it that, 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 that a boxer, though it is they know going into the ring, that they are going to get a huge payday, whether they win or lose in that fight. They do it through intimidation. It's that need for intimidation. It's very interesting that we've become this society now, especially you notice this on social media as well. How people, you know, have to have that intimidating face, you know, when they're, you know, get their picture taken or something like that. You know, I remember, you know, in my school yearbook when I was in high school, everybody was smiling. And now I, I saw my little sister's yearbook from when she was in high school. And some of these kids are, you know, trying to give this intimidating face and all that stuff. It's really become a part of the culture today. And, you know, the thing about it, though, is that... Women, and also our friends, as a matter of fact, if we approach them with such a thing as Rabbi Shalom Arush says, they take it in a much different way than the way that it might be intended. There's a story about uh, one of the great rabbis, and I forgot who it was. You know, he would uh, come home, walk home from work every day to his wife. And uh, one of the things that he would always end up having this issue with is there was always a lot of wind. They would go and cause his beard to be all scraggly when he got home and his hair, you know, and all this stuff. And he looked very disheveled. So what he would do is stand outside the door and, you know, get himself all spruced up before it is that he would go inside. He said, because first of all, I don't want my wife to see me in that way. I don't want her to think that there is something, you know, horribly wrong with me or something quarrelsome or something of, of, the, of that sort the moment that I walk in the door. I need to make sure that I that I present to her the uh, the things that her eyes see as 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 joy and everything being put together and in its place the moment that I walk in that door. That is so important. That is so very important. The Sefer Haridim writes. When a person sees a friend's animal collapsed under its burden, he must help him. If he doesn't, he transgresses the negative commandment of you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen by the way and hide yourself from them, as we find in the book of Davarim or Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 4. When a fellow human's donkey has fallen under its burden, there is an obligation to help it. So too, when a fellow human himself has fallen under his burden, he must certainly do everything to help him. This means that if the husband sees that his wife is being um, bowed down by the weight of the household chores, he has a Torah obligation to help her. He has more of an obligation to help her than anything else because she is considered his own flesh. And the prophet Isaiah said, Do not ignore your own flesh. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 7. You know, one of the things that we've gotten so used to in this uh, society today is that us men get home from work and we say to ourselves, okay, we've been at work all day. She's been here at home doing the chores and all that stuff. Everything should be in order. And now I can go and sit on my Barca lounger, maybe go and crack open a Corona, and just go and wait for dinner. This is kind of like the Archie Bunker kind of thing, is it not? And the Jackie Gleason kind of thing. You know, this is the kind of thing that we remember from TV shows during our youth. And we even see this, you know, happening today. Oh my gosh, I've had such a hard day at work. I'm going to go to the Water Buffalo Lodge, you know, and all that stuff. You know, we, 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 we remember this. And these are things that have kind of become imprinted into our mind. This is what is owed to us as men, but... The reality couldn't be further from the truth. The fact is that when we talked about how it is that we have to learn gratitude, think about and write down all the things that it is that your wife does every single day for you, that it is that you take for granted, whether it's laundry, cooking, raising the children, all of these things. Think of and write all of those things down. 
you find out that she works much harder than it is that you do, sir. That's the reality. And so the thing about it, though, is that the core obligation of us men is to, first of all, provide for her every want and need. Everything. This is why it is that Rabbi Shalom Marish goes into the attribute of laziness. Talks about the couch potato husband. Here's what he says about the couch potato husband. The couch potato husband can possibly have a healthy relationship with his wife. Being around the house all the time, he gets in her way and frequently remarks about whatever she is doing. This upsets her. Arguments and fights ensue, and the peace between them is lost. But when he's out all day, they have space from one another to look forward to seeing each other every day and um, and again in the evening. Now, the thing about it, though, is that I, I understand that we have individuals you know, who are watching this, and I know individuals who are disabled, who are having you know, who aren't able to work and, and sadly they have to rely upon their wife for income or, you know, disability checks and all and all that stuff. I understand this is a reality. But the thing about it though is that, you know, first of all, us men, first of all, have a responsibility. Okay? Now I hope nobody thinks that I'm picking on any person, you know, you know, uh, I'm I'm not picking on anybody here. But first of all, we could become very lazy if this is the case. One of the things that we have now, with which is one of the good attributes of, of technology, not only are you able to watch this teaching, you know, in various different places for free, you know, all over the world, which is great, but also at the same time, in terms of the marketplace, there are, there are attributes, you know, my, my editor as a matter of fact, for the Rabbinic Gospels Project, you know, we put out the Rabbinic Gospel of Mark last year. You know, one of the things that he's kind of retired, but at the same time, you know, he still goes and, uh, you know, is is involved in all of these marketing things that, you know, are being put out through various levels of tech technologies, building websites to promote these certain little things. And I, you know, I always joke around with them and refer to them as pyramid schemes and all that stuff. And so, and, and you know, in reality, some of them are. But the thing about it, though, is that he still keeps himself busy doing something. He's not he's he's not married anymore. But however, at the same time, he's keeping himself busy. He's going out, you know, and going to all of these different functions to you know promote these things, you know. And this is something that every man should do, you know. I mean, even if it is that a person, you know, chashvi shalom, say that they are disabled in some way, shape, or form. There is still something that it is that they can do that basically gives that room between them and their wife that their wife actually really needs and that you actually end up needing as well. Because one of the things that we ultimately end up seeing is that one of the highest divorce rates in Jewish communities, believe it or not, and there's not very much divorce within Judaism as we've talked about before, but it usually tends to happen after people retire. Why? Because of the fact that they are basically in each other's grill all the time. And that's one of the things that really, you know, could cause a lot of strife and cause a lot of issue. Is, is, is not having that, that, that space to say, whoa, I just need to breathe. You know, because, you know, because then it, it, it's almost like a smothering to the wife in many ways. But see, at times, at the same time, there are going to be times to where it is that she needs you there and you need to be there when it is that she needs you. It may not be at the most opportune times either. But again, go back to the lesson and to the chapter in the book on first place. And you'll understand a little bit more about this. What about arguments? The Satan dances uh, wherever there is strife. So no one avoids arguments, uh, so that, so one must avoid arguments at all costs. If an argument has already been sparked, the husband should be quick to extinguish it peacefully. If he doesn't, fur doesn't, further arguments are likely to ensue. The nature of argument is that one leads to another. The Shalah writes, that at the beginning it says, and there was an argument between the shepherds of Abraham's flock and the shepherds of the herds of Lot. But when Abraham Avinu spoke with that of Lot, he said, let there be not strife between me and you. He said strife in the feminine tense. Ooh, 
Very interesting. In the Hebrew, it actually uses the feminine tense rather than argument in the masculine sense. Why did he do this? Avraham was saying to Lot, the argument that began between the shepherds, let it stay as one argument not, argument, and not give birth to further ones. Like a woman who gives birth. When a husband becomes entrenched in arguments and refuses to concede his position, he transgresses what it says in the Torah. Don't be like Korach in the congregation. Guys, let me tell you something. One of the things that our egos thrive on, and the ego is something that we really have to get under control that is a major part of the Yetzirah, is by wanting to be right. At all times, we want to be right. The thing about it, though, is sometimes it's not about, be, about being right. It's about shalom. And if we followed that, instead of saying, it might be perceived as being the smartest, it might be perceived as being the, the, the guy to go to on everything, to up my ego. The question then becomes, are we fulfilling mitzvahs correctly? Chashvi shalom. No, we're not. Not at all. The book of Proverbs says in chapter 16, verse 2, all the, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. <laughs> Think on that. Let me read that again. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. A person thinks that what he does and thinks is correct. This is natural. In every difference of opinion, if one side feels that he is right, the other side is wrong. He'll stubbornly argue his point. People have a very strong desire to, to defeat others. But apart from where this topic is very serious... Winning an argument is usually not worthwhile. Conceding a point preserves one's own strength and peace. Peace with others is a true victory. Especially with one's wife. Bowing to her wishes and placing her in first priority are the greatest show of strength and greatest of victory. Man, I wish that you know we could get this through people's skulls today. Because in many ways, there are so many walking about egos that we ultimately end up seeing. Within that of ministry, especially within that of social media, you know, everybody's got to be right. For some reason, I'm deficient if I'm wrong. I think one of the reasons why it is that this program has been as successful as it has the past 15 years is because of the fact that you guys have heard me say many, many times, well, I used to believe this and I actually taught this and I was wrong. I was wrong. Let me tell you something. You have more of an ability to grow and more of an ability to walk in the ways of Hashem when it is that we devoid ourselves from the equation and say, based upon what I've learned here, based upon new evidence, I'm wrong. You guys can look back at the, uh, at the uh, teachings that I've done with, uh, with Matthew. And we got another one coming up here uh, this week, as a matter of fact, that is dealing with the... Uh, um, with the uh, the three Moedim that we end up having um, just within the next next couple of months, and within that, you know, you've 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 heard me go 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 and say, well, you know, uh, Matthew, you know, you've kind of convinced me in this way, you know, on this point in a way that I didn't see it before, or I've never seen that before, and all this stuff. And the thing about though is that one of the things that I learned in rabbinic school is that you learn from everybody, not just those who agree with you. So don't surround yourself with just simply people who agree with you because you are really going and doing yourself a very much a huge disservice if you say, you know what, I'm just surrounding myself with people who agree with me because that's ultimately going to lead to your destruction and you're not going to be able to grow. It's not going to be able to happen. The Talmud says that whatever that whoever places too much fear in his home will in the end um, come to transgress three major sins. Forbidden sexual relations, bloodshed, breaking the Shabbos. Here's how. Forbidden sexual relationships is the first one. If the night of the wife's ritual immersion arrives, but for some reason she does not manage to immerse herself, she'll be too afraid to tell him, so she'll have relations with him while she is still unritually impure. Ooh. Think on that. That actually plays into, you know, forbidden sexual relations. 
the second bloodshed. She may run away out of fear of him due to her emotional distress and it will end up becoming a fatal situation. Think of how many individuals that have, you know, ran from a situation in the home because of anger, because of the anger that was given towards a person's wife and how it is that there were detrimental effects. And it's not, you know, it's not always doesn't deal with, you know, a, a, a quick, you know, form of bloodshed. Sometimes it can be something very slow that takes time, progresses, such as drugs and all of these things, trying to numb the pain. Transgression of the Shabbos is the third one. If a wife forgets to kindle the, sh the uh, Shabbat hot plate before nightfall, her fear of his rejection will lead her to turn it on after the Shabbos has, co has commenced and he will eat food that has been cooked on the Shabbos. Now, I somewhat disagree with this one in terms of that being the thing that would be broken. And here's the reason why. Uh, we don't see anywhere um, from Chazel under the 39 prohibition that's that cooking is one of the prohibitions of the Shabbos. Uh, I was never taught this, you know, Rebbe Nachman, or Rebbe, uh, uh, Rebbe Shalom Arush is from, uh, Breslov, which is where it is that I'm, that I was taught. I don't see that anywhere in the writings of Rabbi Shalom Arush, though I have not written, or, or, or not Rabbi Shalom Arush, Rebbe Nachman or Breslov. I have not read that from any of Rebbe Nachman's, uh, Halakha. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I have not been taught that, I have not been taught to focus in on that. Or any of the others. I could be wrong. Again, another one of those points. I could be wrong. So, you know, I'm going to hold on to that. A man must never insult his wife or strike her. Absolutely. Absolutely. He must never do as such. God forbid. The Jewish code of law states, A man who hits his wife has committed a transgression, and the power is given to the court to beat him and to execute him, because this is not the way. That is absolutely true. Any person who, who, who hits a wife or hits a woman at all, first of all, I totally wholeheartedly agree with this. You know, it is taught within that of the, uh, the, uh, the atonement. If any person, if the Jewish courts had to execute one person every seven years, if they had to execute just one person in seven years, it's considered a, an, a, uh, a bloodthirsty San, Sanhedrin. The thing about it, though, is that, first of all, I would say that any person that hits a woman is not human at all. He's not a human at all. He's an animal. So, you know, the thing about it, though, is that I don't think that that should go into the uh, into the counting of how many people had been put to death by that of the Sanhedrin. And the reason why it talks about that in the Talmud is because of the fact that oftentimes the, uh, the Pharisees tried to get around the death penalty. For, for for individuals because that deals a great deal with hukim law. Hukim law is not the same as mitzvot or mishpatim, and well, technically it, it does relate to 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 to, mitz, to mishpatim, but at the same time, it uh, also you know wants us to exercise chesed, to exercise loving kindness. But for an individual who hits a woman, first of all, you're a piece of garbage, if you ask me. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital explains that when our sages said that anger is a tantamount of idolatry, they were teaching us that a person with emunah shouldn't get angry. With emunah, he should know that everything happens to him, even at the hands of others, is from Hashem. As such, there is nothing to be angry about. Anger shows the lack of emunah, and therefore is equated with idolatry. King Solomon said anger rests in the bosom of fools, as we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 9. A fool doesn't look beneath the surface of what he sees, uh, so he never uh, discerns Hashem's hand by providence of underlining whatever happens to him. He therefore gets angry with whoever wrongs him and fumes whenever whatever things didn't go his way. A wise person, on the other hand, knows that when people wrong him, it is due to his own sins. He knows that there is a message for him in his suffering. He trusts his loving Father in heaven who is guiding his life. 
so that something doesn't work out like he wants, he knows that it's all for the best. Okay? And that's one of, one of, one of the, the, the huge things of learning and practicing emunah, is that first of all, um, you know, realizing that everything comes from Hashem. We still have a long ways to go here, but I know that we've gone over an hour. So what we're going to do is we are going to finish up this here within a couple of days. Okay, you're going to get an extra episode within a couple of days here. Because I don't want to make these episodes too long to where it is that people only listen to part of it and not the whole thing. Okay, so we're going to work on this um, here within a couple of more days because there's so much more to get into. It's, it's the longest chapter within the book. But I want to, to ask you guys to go and subscribe on iTunes. Go and open up your podcast app on your iPhone or your iPad or something like that and go and uh, hit subscribe under the podcast Brutal Planet. Do a search on there, Brutal Planet. Go and hit subscribe, all right? So I'm going to wish each and every single one of you Shalom Bracha, peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewandAramaic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step by step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.